0: It's time to stop dealing and start demanding. It's time to stop being PC and start being transparent and authentic. It's time to get real. Prepare yourself. It's time for Crazy and the King.
1: Welcome to... (laughs) Who
0: knew it say, she's gonna go in. She ain't gonna even say, to Are you ready? She's just gonna go in. She's just gonna go ham. I'm sitting on my side, like I know she's just gonna fucking go in. I know. I know she's not even gonna ask me if I'm. Am I ready? So let me put this glass down because I know she's get ready to go in. And you did. You did. And that's why your voice cracked.
1: <laughs> oh, you're so funny today. Okay. All Thanks, right. Buddy. Are you ready this time?
0: I'm, thank you. I'm ready.
1: let <laughs> will see if I'm ready. Who knows? <clears throat> Welcome to Crazy in the King 2020.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I know you guys get to get the remnants of a laugh. Julie and I love getting started. We are like in a great mood right now. Our one year anniversary. How are you? I'm
1: very, very well. I'm home and uh, I'm happy. I'm I just when we just popped on before we started recording, uh, we both were like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe it's already been a year, a yeah. year of crazy in the king. And so that's uh, that's just a fun day. And I'm glad we're actually recording on the same day again for the first time. So how are you?
0: Yeah, I'm wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. And I really am looking forward to next year. You know, as I I think back and we've said it on a number of occasions and it, it, it's not overkill to just, you know, remind people that we really, really enjoy Uh, Getting together and having these discussions on various topics that are in the news, Uh, but that even more this year, we're looking forward to growing what it is that we offer in terms of content, how we produce, who we invite on the show. Julie and I are committed uh, but part of that commitment means that we we offer up our platform to other voices. We've never come to this work feeling as if we have all of the answers, as if we are the only ones that can do it. Uh, and so we want to make sure that this year part of our expansion is to reach out and grab individuals that are chief diversity officers and others that are committed to v- diversity, equity, equity inclusion and belonging and, and provide them with space on our uh, our show. So we're looking forward to uh, just another year of growing and delivering good content for each and every one of you.
1: So, if we're getting all excited about the new things, what was your kind of favorite moment or favorite interview from our first year?
0: You know, I don't, I don't know if I had a favorite. I mean, the doctor that we have from the University of Texas that wrote the books—you yep. him. Say it again,
1: uh, Doctor Robert Jensen.
0: Doctor Robert Jensen was an incredible interview. I enjoyed doing that. I enjoyed. Uh, chatting with just so many individuals, Tracy Parsons and Willie Ivory and and others. I mean, Andrea from 70 million jobs like I enjoyed, you know, moving around. I think the most revealing thing for me, Julie, was not so much so in a particular interview. It was in you. And what a lot of people don't don't necessarily know is that you know, life has a tendency. The media has a tendency. We have a tendency to amplify the negative uh, and not focus enough to retweet, to reshare, to reinforce, remind people of the positive. And when you and I got together and we started doing these recordings, there were a number of occasions where even though we are in two separate states, there were a number of occasions where I could just hear your breathing changed I could hear the inquisition in your query. You were curious. You wanted to learn, to do better, to show up differently. That genuineness uh, meant a whole lot to me in having you as a pod partner. And so while we knew one another barely, Before starting the podcast, we've grown to know one another even more. And so that's been my favorite part. It's just being able to evolve our relationship and knowing that we're both moving, even though we may not always agree. I think the one story that that comes to mind where we didn't agree was on the Colin Kaepernick in the shoes. Oh, yes. You know, I remember that one, you know, where we, we we had we had different opinions of that and and still even in having differing opinions. I think you asked me the other day, uh, you said something around, Torin, I don't know why you don't really like football. You totally forgot <laughs> that it was all around. It's all around, you know, just supporting Colin. And even before that, and a lot of people don't know this. I haven't watched football in four years. I haven't watched football since the quarterback here in Baltimore got a 100 million dollar contract. For me, when we won that Super Bowl against San Francisco, I was like, yo, he might be good, but he ain't that damn good. <laughs> and so for me, I checked out after we won the Super Bowl. And then uh, okay. it was that next year that Colin set set out. So, my four years includes a year before Colin. I say all of that to simply say I've enjoyed learning who you are in this process of covering stories
1: yes absolutely i think my favorite moment was somewhere right around that dr jensen was my was my favorite interview as well and uh and loved the uh, conversation you and I had about Sherm and the Koch brothers. I think that was our first controversial show. And uh, we got a great reaction, you know, good and bad. And that's what we're looking for for from those conversations. So, you know, it's just been fun, not only getting to know each other better, but to grow our, our kind of voices on this show. And and then just all of the people that we've met from around the country and around the world who uh, we've been able to connect with just by sharing our just thoughts on, on simple things that are happening in the news, but actually have a, a much larger impact over time um, on our community. And we have to bring those things forward. So I think Think um, you gonna start us off this week? You wanna introduce your uh, your current event?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and my current event is not so much so a news story, but more of I want to call it a research paper, a white paper. Uh, it was an article, uh, and and I can't remember. Uh, the name uh, of Sherm's magazine but Todd Corley uh, who is with the tapo tapo Institute he wrote an article around diversity and leadership that article is actually titled creating accountability for inclusive responsive leadership uh, and the article is is but part of the entire magazine found it fascinating and incredible read and he shared it on on LinkedIn maybe two weeks ago had a chance to really digest the article. It's not long, it's five pages, but with the schedule had to really make some time to digest it. And I did that this past week. And, and what I want to tell you, you know, is that it was a really refreshing and straight to the point article. He actually opens it up, Julie, referring to well-intentioned leaders, you know, the ones that show up and say the right things, they're willing to write a check and, you know, give boys to the ERGs, BRGs and press releases, but that as Todd says, quote, they are operating under an illusion that of self-perceived effectiveness. And I really, really, really found that like so inviting. And I said, I'm going to, to absolutely enjoy this, this read. Now, for those of you out there who are not familiar with Todd Corley, he's not you know, a fly by night. He's not chasing ambulances. He is deeply, deeply rooted in this organizational, organizational change management, diversity, equity and inclusion space. Corley actually uh, had joined uh, Abercrombie and Fitch back in 2004 at a time when they were in serious trouble. Uh, a point of reference around that trouble included uh, a lawsuit uh, titled Gonzalez versus Abercrombie and Fitch stores where Abercrombie was uh, violating title seven of the civil rights act of 1964. And basically I'll sum it up for you. They were really just doing everything that they could in terms of hiring focused on, you know, collegiate blonde haired blue eyed, you know, white individuals. And, and if they deviated from that more often than not, if they hired someone that looked like me, or who was Hispanic or Latina or or any other ethnicity, they more often than not were not allowed to work in the front of the store, Julie. They were actually relegated to positions uh, in the back of the store. Are you familiar with that case at all?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting how much movement, uh, lawsuits against Abercrombie and Fitch have have moved kind of our conversation and our inclusion around marketing and hiring. And I think this is, you know, the, the Gonzalez case is the first one. And it is a pretty landmark decision um, in terms of really understanding how our brand and how our hiring practices impact every part of, of how we do business and how they become cyclical to each other. I don't know, Torna, I just actually was um, catching up on this case in prep for our pod, and I hadn't realized that, so post-settlement, so they settled um, for what, $50 million? is that right? Yeah, that, that's um, a
0: number that I've seen frequently.
1: Okay, so like $50 million for violation of hiring practices, and they also, in their consent degree, consent decree um, had a six-year monitoring period. And, and during that time, kind of roughly between 2008 and 2010, the EEOC actually argued that Abercrombie's marketing diversity or lack thereof, again, going back to your description of of what the employees look like, the models look the same, that that is or could be seen as a hiring guide and a part of, of the way that EEOC and and potentially OFCCP would look at how companies are marketing consumer facing, not employer facing. That that was ultimately denied, but I think what really happened here with the Abercrombie case is that opened up a national conversation about best practices, not just around um, including people of color and including women into the workforce, but how that advertising and marketing conversation really impacts both the employer brand and the consumer brand.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And again, as Julie said, it was, you know, a bit of a landmark case and it generated tons and tons and tons of national press uh, press coverage. It was even profiled on 60 Minutes. And, and that's when Todd Corley was brought in to uh, help them with their DNI efforts. I can't remember his exact title when he was at Abercrombie, but I just wanted to share that backdrop so listeners Uh, would have an idea of who Todd Corley is in writing this article uh, that he wrote for SHRM uh, around accountability for inclusive, responsive leadership. So the reason why I love Todd's article, I really do, is because he acknowledges the fact that for years the conversation has been largely punitive in nature, punitive. In nature or categorized as the right thing to do. I often say, Julie, that uh, I want to chase a conversation that has promise, not uh, punishment. I want to chase a conversation that has promise, not punishment, that if we go about doing this diversity, equity and inclusion work, it doesn't have to be painful. It may be hard. It may require some shifting. But it doesn't have to be painful. It doesn't have to be finger pointing to the degree, to the extent that we alienate and push people out of the conversation that they that they check out and don't want to to get in and do the work with us. And so I am really looking for people that have, you know, conversations that are 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 stoked in. And promise. And Todd writes in that way, he talks about the struggle of those that do the window dressing press releases that we see so many companies do. Uh, and and he gave a comprehensive five page report that that is easy for each of you to digest. Just a few of the highlights, Julie. Number one, he said perceived inauthenticity leads to prolonged mistrust and distrust, leaving stakeholders feeling psychologically unsafe and emotionally taxed. He says that psychological unsafety leads to fear. Emotional taxation leads to withdrawal. Both lead to exclusion. Let that kind of vibe. I think that needs to resonate for a moment. That that psychological unsafety leads to emotional taxation, which leads to withdrawal. We talk about that often. People retreat if they can't live up to the perception that you have of them or what you feel uh, they should be doing, so to speak, if, if they can't live up to. And I call that covering. Um, it's I mean, just deep work done by Deloitte and Kenji Yoshino. We talk about it often. Won't go into it today. But Todd talks about both of them leading to exclusion. He actually made reference to the Edelman Trust Barometer. Uh, And, you know, that report that comes out annually where we want leaders and one of the biggest things in the Edelman Trust Barometer that rises to the top in terms of a data point is employees want their leaders to speak up, let their actions match their words. And then the last thing that I'll kind of highlight from the article, there are certainly a number of worthy highlights, but the article lists six different ways that a leader can show up. So a leader can really show up as an individual. Julie, they can show up as a person in the community. They can also show up as a leader with customers, three different personas of leadership. And what Todd says is he gives a little framework and there's a nice chart inside of the article that says, if you show up in this capacity, in this persona, then this is really what's expected of you from. The respective stakeholder, an incredible, incredible five page read.
1: So, Torn, I I think this also connects nicely to some news that just dropped uh, late last week that Goldman Sachs will not be agreeing to take any private company public in what's called an IPO offering or an initial public offering without some diversity on the board of directors, and I believe the criteria—I have to double check—is is at least one woman, or it might be one woman or a person of color. And, and then on the other side, the the care or the stick side that you mentioned a minute ago, uh, California actually just enacted a law last week that if a publicly traded company does not have at least one woman on the board, they will fine that company hundred thousand uh, dollars, and and this goes through all of those kind of pieces of why the leadership is so much more important in action and how we're growing tired and and not engaging with the same level of trust or intent that we did with brands a few years ago that we we knew they were just talking about it and they didn't have that action but we were glad that we were talking about it now we're moving on to that next place
0: yeah and you remember last week what uh, uh, i'm sorry when we recorded our last session you asked what a What's one of the things that I'm looking forward to in 2020? And what I said to you was that I believe we're going to have more Me Too, Times Up type moments, yep. and not Me Too in 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 specificity, but that people were going to speak up, beginning to speak up. And so, uh, when you mentioned a moment ago, Goldman Sachs, actually their CEO David Solomon. He made that announcement in Davos uh, last week uh, over in Switzerland, and he said uh, in 2020, all this year going forward, not taking any companies public. And what he said was diversity in 2021. It needs to be two representation or two different people represented. So my only challenge with that is I absolutely love the statement applaud mm-hmm. the statement. Absolutely, absolutely applaud the statement. I applaud the position, the posture that they're taking. It reminds me of the good work that is being done by Larry Fink over at BlackRock. But but my challenge is that we make sure that as as has often happened, white women have been the biggest benefactors of D&I initiatives. And so even when you look at boards of directors uh, right now, current state of boards of directors, while there may not be people of color, African-Americans, Hispanic, Latino, Latina, there will be white women that are shown. So what I want is to make sure that that diversity that he mentions is broadly defined and that we don't go to the default of white women and white women with a focus. Make sense?
1: No, absolutely. I think we can uh, we can all agree to that.
0: And then the other piece, the other piece around California, Julie, uh, I love that California made that. And, and you know, what they're doing, I don't want to say that they're following the European countries, uh, but European countries made that announcement last year, you know, and, and maybe even a bit in 2018 where organizations had to to make sure that they had diversity at their their highest levels. So I'm glad that California as a state is making that statement, that proclamation that it's important uh, in their domain.
1: Yeah, I, I think, though, so. the money people, right, yeah. not the government, but the Goldman Sachs. I mean, who in my brain is, is, you know, sometimes a little bit of the, the devil in terms of of how they be, behave and drive markets when they're starting to at least get to the bare bones importance of some diversity like i think that in the long term that's that could be much more impactful as a carrot as an opportunity and as a a gauntlet because of how much money is controlled and moved through Goldman Sachs, Um, you know, as a carrot rather than as the stick that that we've got with the California fine, who I agree is going to move just towards more and more European kind of model financial and and economic um, policies. And and we'll see that this year with uh, GDPR as well in California.
0: Yeah. So as we close out the article uh, around Todd Corley, uh, we'll make sure we put in the show notes all of his links to his Twitter account, podcasts and, uh, of course, his website. But there is a powerful stat that I just want to read to all of you. Uh, he closes the article towards the end. He says that according to Pew Research Center, within 25 years, America's population will be its most heterogeneous in history. By mid century, there will be two billion elderly and two billion young people in the world living and or working on the same planet, representing one of five races, seven generations, 63 genders, 4,200 religions and 5,000 cultural ethnicities in nearly 6,000 languages. If that does not share with you that we have a wide, wide, wide definition of diversity and an even wider and more critical definition of inclusion. I don't know what does. This article really examines the accountability and frameworks and the behavioral patterns in organizations where inclusion has become a matter of pride. I'm going to make sure that I put this article on my LinkedIn page. So if you are listening to the pod, go over to my LinkedIn page and I'm going to make sure that the article is there. Uh, And I'm also going to tag a number of other incredible people in our space, Julie.
1: Yeah, no, that's, that's great. And I think, you know, I, you lead perfectly into the next story and. The world is changing. The world is changing every single day. And the conversation sometimes around mental health and stigma is, is still not changing. I don't feel like we are progressive, progressing as rapidly as we could be around this, this terminology and this engagement with our, our community. And I, I saw an article that I, I'm actually, I've, it's from the Wall Street Journal. And if you want a copy, I have a copy I can share with you in case you're not a Wall Street Journal subscriber. But it's great news. So I
0: encourage that. Absolutely.
1: Did you did you grow up in the church? Did you grow up in a, in a religious family?
0: So if you um, if you listen to Career Mix on Sundays, I have drums as my intro outro music and part of that reason is because I played the drums when I was in church. So I absolutely grew up, ah. I grew up in a Baptist church. I used to play the drums rocking every Sunday. It was a good spot. You understand what I'm saying with them sticks? Yep. The girls like to do it on the drums, but that's a whole nother story.
1: <laughs> yeah. I think that's a different podcast, that's but it probably podcast. a story worth. It yeah,
0: that's a different one. So yeah, I grew up in the church.
1: Okay. So you grew up in the church in, in a bit of the South, I'll say if I remember correctly. And, uh, And I grew up in the Midwest in assemblies of God, kind of Pentecostal church. And, you know. As, as you know, I've struggled with mental health issues all of my life. And I think I, I don't I certainly don't blame the church um, because I think that we have to have more open and honest conversations as people with mental health disabilities. But the way that we learned at church to manage our difficulties, whether that was depression or anxiety or, or kind of whatever was going on in our brain, there was always a lot of faith. Involved, you know. Um, if you pray hard enough, you you won't be depressed. If if you're really giving God your your issues, then then you won't be anxiety. You know, you won't be anxious. So, kind of all of these things, and that impacted me, and and the way that I got treatment for a lot of years. And and I've always thought about that, but I saw this amazing article from. The Wall Street Journal, an author by the name of Ian Lovett, it's like I got kicked out of my family. Church struggles with mental health in the ranks. And probably everybody is going, okay, so what what does this have to do with, with d and Julie? And what does it have to do with um, how I'm doing my job and, and maintaining my workforce? And I think it's important for two reasons. One is something that I absolutely did not know, and and am embarrassed to say that I didn't know it as as a disability expert. But Torin, did you know that churches are exempt from the ADA?
0: No, I did not know that. When I read the article, I was absolutely floored by that as well.
1: So I, I didn't I didn't realize. And so when we're thinking about that as employers, as DNI experts, as HR experts, that also includes potentially some of the churches that you work at and that you attend on a regular basis. And that also means that pastors and reverends and and priests, those individuals are not covered by the ADA or section 503 or the EEOC when they have mental health problems and need to get help and need to be able to continue to run their, run their places of business, stay in their leadership position within the church, they need to have treatment. And this story is so incredible because it talks about people who are in the ministry who've been fired from their jobs due to their diagnosis and admission of their mental health disabilities. And you know, of the three, the four maybe that they they highlighted, two of them committed suicide.
0: We're not talking about so how do I say this in a way that is Uh, responsible. What I often say, Julie, is um, people are people first before any designation or title. And so when I hear you say that two of the four and that that they committed suicide because people have told them just pray more and it'll be okay. I remember an article that talked about how some of the churches didn't support them because they didn't feel like they were godly enough, something I'm paraphrasing, but they weren't godly enough. It's just so many issues that I have with stories like this, with people that operate in this way. These individuals are people before they are a designation, a title. They committed suicide. So I just want that to I want people I want that to land on the ears of our listeners. These are, you know, clergy, clergy. They are supposed to have some of the closest connection to. To God, the most high, to Allah, to whomever it is that you believe in. And yet they took their life.
1: Yeah. And especially another big consequence of that is many ministers who need medication being encouraged not to take medication that's been prescribed by their doctor. And that's not unique to churches who don't treat for health at all or for for illness at all but very common among evangelical churches and and most um kind of suburban churches that we go to on you know every Sunday and there's this kind of notion that faith has to kind of equal this this blindness to the grace of treatment that God has given us and not to take advantage of of that opportunity and the other thing that I think is really important is and then I'll kind of get back to my point of what does this what could, what does this mean for you but that this is it's a compounding effect it's a butterfly effect because ministers can't talk about who they are because they can't be that person and and then have protections around their job and, and oftentimes lose their job and their ability to continue to do their job even in other places but that reinforces that same message out to the congregation, pray hard enough, be better. There must be something wrong with you in terms of sin that you haven't given over to God that creates that culture of guilt that just is cyclical And the ability for people to get help, to talk about who they are, to talk about the things that they need in a way that is medically related. We can say that we feel sad as long as there's a biblical answer to that. And that creates you know uh, we have an ever increasing culture of suicide in this country it's risen roughly 40% since early 2000 and, and the churches have such an opportunity to break that up you know kind of going back to to our audience i think it's important one for hr professionals and dni professionals and and even you know people leaders to understand the communities that they live in and if they do live in communities that have A very deep commitment to faith in their community. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But understand where there might be some lack in that church life and that, that ministerial, you know, ministry that they're getting that, you know, most churches don't have any plans to help, um, families affected by mental illnesses. They aren't staffed by licensed mental health professionals, just pastoral counselors yep. and there's a, a big lack of training for leaders on how to recognize mental illness. So this is something that you could communicate as a need as a con- or a, a member of the congregation, um, but also recognizing how these may play out in your
0: workplace. Absolutely. And I think that's the point that you are trying to drive home in your workplace. Mental health has to be a consideration. Yes. And so when we are thinking about wellness programs, when we are thinking about putting together uh, benefit packages for our employees. When we are thinking about uh, these staff augmentation profiles and, uh, you know, talent mapping, when we are thinking about anything that deals with people as we are moving in this fourth industrial phase, as we are faced with compensation that in many ways is the very same as 1999 or or, or thereabouts, you know, folks, the 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 inequity, the inequality, the there's so many things that go into people and their mental health. So it can be from birth. It can be some of these factors that we experience. We just want to encourage each of each of you that are listening that you have a more robust thought around how do you take care of that employee experience. Yeah, it's good to put the ball table in the break room and provide complimentary lunches on Friday. But what are you doing behind the curtain to take care of your employees and their families?
1: And and that we need more uh, of the people who are listening, more of our leaders in the D&I community and H.R. as they have mental health disabilities as they have hidden disabilities to take that brave step, take that brave leadership post and start conversations within your organizations, within your church, within your workforce, within your community that help allow us to remove so much of that fear and stigma that's related to Very common and and much more significant and and very dynamic mental illnesses and we need more leaders in our communities to to do that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So let me say to each and every one of you. I know that Julie's going to put that link uh, in the show notes. And like she said, if you don't have a subscription to the Wall Street Journal, if you ping her on Twitter, Julie Sowash. That's J U L I E S O W A S H. If you ping her on Twitter. Shout out Crazy and the King and ask her for a link. I'm sure she'll make sure she gets it to you. Let me share with you all just one quick resource that we have. I want to try to do this every single pod. The resource for this week is projectinclude.org. Projectinclude.org. Um go there if you are struggling with where to start with your DNI initiative. If you are started but you feel stalled. Uh, Project Include is a strong and solid starting point to to help you to begin to take and or increase uh, to advance the action that is being taken. Project Include. Dot org, you have name drops, Julie. Um, yep,
1: I do. So mine is from Davos, uh, Greta Th- Thornburg, who you know probably most of you have heard of. Uh, was at the World Economic Forum this year, talking about the importance of climate change. Not only is that super cool in my opinion, but she's a, a 17 with autism um, who who's really uh, showing the world what people are are capable of and and growing and running with a cause that is passionate to her. What about you, Tor?
0: Yeah, so mine goes uh, to Laura I. Gomez. I met Laura probably four years ago, almost five. I met her just after she started Atypica. Uh, And unfortunately, Atypica came to the end of of their ride. It was a five-year run. Uh, The organization really, really, really was doing some good work and helping Uh, employers peer into their applicant tracking systems and finding hidden talent uh, and addressing EEOC type application as well. Uh, Unfortunately, the, the company came to an end this past week. Laura says, quote, we did the best that we could with very limited venture capital we received over the course of five years, end quote. And the reason I wanted to shout Laura out is because I want to make sure that that I just put a positive whisper in the atmosphere for her and whatever her next step is, that all of her team members land someplace and find gainful and exciting employment. And to remind each and every one of you that there have been less than 50 uh, women of color, less than 50. Hear me clearly, less than 50 women of color that have raised more than a million dollars in a round of funding. So I'm talking, you can get 300,000, that's not a million. There have been less than 50 women of color that have raised more than $1 million in a single round of funding. Part of the reason why Atypica is no longer on the scene. So shout out to you, Laura I. Gomez, wishing you well in whatever your next steps are.
1: Awesome, so thank you for that. I, I love those kind of shout outs or name drops, and if you have openings, Hit us up. We, we have a lot of, uh, at least I know I do, um, friends and colleagues who are back in the market and looking for their, for their next opportunity in our space. So uh, never, ever hesitate to do that. I'm headed to Dallas this week uh, tour for some great meetings with some really amazing brands for disability solutions and then looking forward to hitting smart recruiters in uh, mid-February in San Francisco. What have you uh, got going on this week?
0: So for anyone who uh, is interested if you went to inclusive-hiring.com, you'll see that I'm in London this week, uh, keynoting at the Inclusive Hiring event, and I'm looking forward to it. That event is actually uh, on January 30th at the British Library in London. The website is inclusive-hiring.com, Julie.
1: Awesome. So I think uh, I think that says safe travels across the pond, sir, and give everyone our love and uh, take us home.
0: I got it. I close reminding each and every one of you to share the pod with your digital tribe. Make sure that inside of your workplace you find your, your unique voice. Like, I want you to be a better human. I want you to have an awesome rest of the week. Remind you to catch me on SiriusXM channel 126, 1 p.m. each and every Sunday. I celebrate my one-year anniversary next week with SiriusXM. It's been crazy over the last 52 weeks with Julie and with SiriusXM, but I've enjoyed every single moment. For now, Julie and I are ghosts.
1: Thanks for listening to Crazy and the King podcast. I'm Julie Sowash, your co-host with Torn Ellis. Follow us on social media as Torn Ellis or Julie Sowash, and also follow our hashtag crazy and the King. This episode was produced by my gorgeous husband, Chad Sowash, and our music is by DJ Sells, straight out of Baltimore. You can find Crazy and the King wherever you find your podcasts, Please rate us and if you like it, share it with a friend. We'll see you soon.
0: Welcome change agents to your go-to place for stories that ignite your spirit, fuel your purpose and connect us all. We believe in the incredible power of the human spirit